This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independent. Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And a good Sunday morning, everyone. Welcome this Sunday morning to your radio doctor. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, this Sunday. Dr. Marianne has a great, great show lined up for you uh, over the next hour. She's going to introduce you to a very, very special guest from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. All of that coming up over the next hour. This is your radio doctor. Doc, it's all yours. And good morning, Joe. Thank you for that introduction, and good morning to our listeners. Dr. Gerard Kreiner is a world-class clinician, researcher, and teacher whose skills and knowledge have changed the approach to lung disease. Dr. Kreiner is the chair and professor of thoracic medicine and surgery at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, and he's also the director of their Temple Lung Center, which is recognized around the world. So today we'll hear his work with COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lung transplants, and now COVID, including his collaboration with international colleagues on a regular basis. Welcome, Dr. Jerry Kreiner. Oh, Marianne. Uh, good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're so fortunate to have you here. Let's start, Jerry, with talking about the Temple Lung Center. It has a historic uh, leadership role in lung uh, disease with bronchoscopy since the 1920s? Yeah, we had uh, very um, famous international um, colleagues, uh, Chevalier Jackson, who was uh, instrumental in developing modern-day bronchoscopy in the early 1900s, is one of the first to popularize the uh, performance of tracheostomy and esophago 
uh, endoscopy, esophageal endoscopy, as well as bronchoscopy in the early part of the last century. He also was one of the first to look in um, the performance of tracheotomy for patients with obstructive lung disease. So it's a long legacy for airway treatment for, for Temple. Yes. And I think what's really great about your lung center is a lot of programs use the word comprehensive to describe themselves. But for our listeners, if you visit the Temple Lung Center website, you will see from A to Z, not only is it a superb center for diagnosing conditions and treating, but the pulmonary rehab. You even have a chronic cough program, help with smoking cessation and support groups. It's extraordinary, really. And I think the other thing worth mentioning is that Temple, I might have to change your name to Dr. First, because you you and the Lung Center have achieved so many blue ribbons, so many firsts. Can you tell us about uh, bronchial thermoplasty? Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Um, so at the Lung Center in general, we have about um, 150 individuals that, between physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, nurses, researchers who work just do- devoted towards patients that have thoracic medical and surgical diseases, so diseases of the lung and the esophagus overall. And what we've tried to do over the last really 25 to 30 years since the Lung Center was implemented and we became the unified uh, department for medical and surgical problems about five years ago is to really not only provide state-of-the-art clinical care, but besides education, which we are um, Temple University Medical School um, uh, employees or or, uh, physicians, we also tried to perform clinical research clinical research at a caliber that we would study what will be tomorrow's medicines today at Temple. And one of those examples is bronchial thermoplasty that allowed us to be one of the first to do uh, commercial use of bronchial thermoplasty for airways disease for people that have severe persistent asthma who still have symptoms and have flare-ups or exacerbations despite optimized medical treatment. Um, And what this therapy allows us to do is to apply heat to the airway um, and decreases and shrinks airway muscle that improves the caliber of the, uh, of the airway and decreases the flare-up that patients want. So trying to take these therapies that we do in research, help to get them approved as part of clinical care, and then take those lessons learned from the research and be able to treat patients better is what our goal is overall. Yes, and I know just to share with our listeners, uh, you use the bronchoscope to get access to tiny nodules. In the past, we used to have to use surgery. Now you can access those nodules and biopsy to find out if they're benign or cancerous. You were the first in the nation to do that. And so many clinical trials where you've used coils and stents to open up blocked airways. But your big focus, Dr. Jerry Kreiner from Temple, is COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. For our listeners, Dr. Kreiner is a board member of an organization named GOLD, the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. The members are from the entire world, every continent, Europe, South America, the Middle East, Far East, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Dr. Kreiner is the vice president of their science committee. So this is, this is the man. Jerry, can you briefly explain how you help patients by reducing lung volume if they have emphysema? 
Yeah, so um, one of the things that really has revolutionized some of our approach to patients' care with COPD is the ability to work within the chest by going through the normal entrances like the airway without having to make an incision from the outside. And with the revolution in technology, both what we can do from imaging, live imaging overall, and being able to use imaging that's geared towards almost like GPS systems that can help to guide the bronchoscope by using a planning CAT scan of someone's chest. We can now navigate to structures that are small and otherwise we could not see even by fluoroscopy by using these tools to get the small nodules, cut through um, the airway into the lung tissue and transverse the lung tissue without having to make the incision from the outside to diagnose small nodules that otherwise couldn't be approached. And this has led really to a revolution in how we approach some of the chronic lung diseases such as emphysema where we can put tiny valves that can block air going into an area of lung that's more destroyed with emphysema and let the air go out by using a one-way valve so the airway would collapse or the lung tissue would collapse but block the air going back in to prevent it from being reinflated that could mimic the effects that we would see from surgery in the past. So by using these valves, we can accomplish what surgery had done in the past to make a big lung smaller in patients with severe advanced emphysema. I think you're going to see more of this in the future for chronic bronchitis, other forms of emphysema, where endoscopically we can do things that otherwise would only be done by an open fluorocotomy, open incision mm-hmm. in the chest, with the, with the goal of doing things in a less invasive way so we avoid side effects for patients. Sure. And so basically for our listeners, you put in little valves that are shaped like umbrellas. They block off the diseased parts of the lungs so that the healthy areas can, can insufflate more easily. The person breathes more easily. They can go about their lives. You're also training doctors across the country. You were the first to implant these valves after FDA approval. And the other really good thing to know is that every COPD patient is eligible for at least one clinical trial. I'm going to jump, uh, Jerry, to... You're one of the most, nation's most active programs for lung transplants. We could spend a whole show on that in the nation's top five for numbers of transplants per year. And that you also take care of patients that are sometimes turned down from other hospitals. They could be eligible at Temple. Yeah, we um, at Temple, because we are a combined thoracic and, uh, uh, and surg- uh, medical and surgical program, uh, we work each day all day long just with lung and, and esophageal problems. So the surgeons and ourselves and radiologists and nurses and therapists all are just geared towards lung disease. So that means that patients that may have too severe lung disease or other problems such as heart problems, we can sometimes offer them therapies that may not be able to be done in other centers either because they don't have a comprehensive multidisciplinary group that's geared toward them or have um, not enough experience with taking care of patients who are more severely ill post a procedure like that. But um, we've had the largest program by volume in the United States for the last, I think, four years now at Temple. And it's Mm -hmm. due to the talents, I think, of the multidisciplinary team of physicians, nurses, and other therapists um, to be able to help patients in a multidisciplinary manner. Well, this is so important for our listeners to hear. And we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back in a moment. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And welcome back to our listeners. We're here with Dr. Gerard Kreiner from the Temple Lung Center, and we're hearing about all that the Temple Lung Center has to offer. Jerry, let's talk a little bit now about COVID. That's on everybody's mind, especially those who have an underlying lung disease. And you have such a unique program for COVID therapy. Tell us about that. Yeah, really the planning for COVID at Temple started um, uh, at the end of January, beginning of February, and we had a good sense from, um, you know, my exposure to people internationally where we worked for gold for COPD. Um, there's people that I work with from China and uh, Korea and Singapore, as well as Italy and uh, UK and Spain. So listening to them uh, since they preceded the United States in terms of their um, involvement with covid gave us uh, a glimpse of what the future could be in the United States, and it became clear that after China and the expansion into Europe, that it wasn't a question if it was coming to the United States, it was a question of when. And that really allowed us to prepare ourselves based on what the friends and colleagues in Wuhan had told us, the importance of having a separate building, a separate units, a separate dedicated teams to take care of patients with COVID disease separated from the general hospital population was key. And that's what we start planning at Temple to do. And our administration had the foresight and the ability to dedicate a separate building to just uh, the care of patients with COVID disease from um, intensive care unit beds to general hospital beds to a separate CAT scanner to separate elevators uh, and to a separate operating room suite. So we have a structure that could care for 250 patients around the clock with about uh, 35 teams of physicians in a multidisciplinary fashion to care for patients for COVID. And I think that's another key, a multidisciplinary team. So when people hear that, they need to understand that most hospitals today, when people are on a medical floor, have hospitalists, people there that work on shifts. It's not like the doctor you see in their office comes to the hospital. You have people dedicated. But your multidisciplinary team here includes the internists who usually run the hospital, the pulmonary doctors, cardiologists, all reviewing every case every day, working together together. Um, it's just a very, very well-oiled machine. Yeah, and we used um, also lessons from uh, our colleagues uh, outside the United States, especially in, in Wuhan, to use mm-hmm. telemedicine. So we do virtual consults every day on every patient between the, uh, the internists, our research team, as well as the pulmonologists. And that way we can re-review all the data of patients, look at their images, decide if a patient is getting the right therapy or needs additional therapy, and also see if a patient is eligible for a novel therapy that otherwise they wouldn't be eligible with, and bring our clinical trials people in around the clock to enroll patients. And and actually, we've been able to enroll about 45% of our patients who are eligible for a clinical trial into a clinical trial getting novel therapy. And that, because the patients participate, is why therapies like remdesivir just received FDA emergent approval. It's because having groups of people that can help clinicians enroll patients in the trial, but the patients who are agreeable not only to help themselves, but to help 
others to find a therapy that may be effective for a disease as deadly as this. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And and I know that Temple is carrying at least 50 percent of the cases throughout Philadelphia. Yeah, we have a preponderance of the patients in Philadelphia. And I think a lot of that is because if you look at the distribution of cases in Philadelphia in our our surrounding uh, area, we have a heavy burden of uh, prevalence of the disease, people that are COVID positive. I think the last I looked, it's uh, 103 patients per 10,000 in our zip code and in the surrounding zip codes. So that means uh, that we're going to see more cases than anyone else from people in the surrounding population, and we need to be prepared for it. Yes. And I know that you mentioned when we were chatting the other day that 92% of your patients are either African-American or Latino. So the data seems to show an increased risk in our African-American patients. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that um, patients that uh, are, are basically of color have across medicine for my entire career have seen a disproportionate lower level of care. And it's due to a, a lot of different factors. It's due because they have less money. They um, don't have the opportunity to take advantage of preventative care as much. They don't have access to good quality of care in some cases. They have to work and miss the opportunities of taking off work to take care of themselves because they basically have to do jobs that are heavily dependent upon their, their attendance overall. Um, and all those factors together blend in cloud socioeconomic opportunities just because of someone's race overall. Um, and I think, you know, a pandemic like this highlights the inequities in healthcare we have in the United States and actually across the world. And it should be a clarion call for people to wake up and try to address those inadequacies for all people that exist, not only people of African-American, Hispanic, but other people that have different races or different um, different reasons why they are disadvantaged. Some examples of that are people in nursing homes, regardless of their race or, or gender, uh, mm-hmm. people that are in dialysis centers, people that are handicapped overall, people who are impaired from either underlying heart or lung disease. All these patient groups have increased um, morbidity and mortality when they're presented with a severe challenge like COVID-19 is to their health. Yes. And I see, too, that um, at least by mid-April in the U.S., and I know they reported this in China as well, at least in the U.S., more than 60 percent of deaths were in men. Um, And do you think it's because men uh, smoke more? I know in China they say that more than 50 percent of men smoke there, only 2 percent of women. So do you think it's a smoking uh, predilection or maybe hormonal differences between men and women or both? Hard to say, I guess. I think it's less hormonal, but I think it's probably the identified factors. Men tend to be more overweight. They tend to have more heart disease. They tend to smoke more. But the unidentified factors, uh, especially men, are more likely to work in dusty, dirty jobs. So Mm. the occupational records really aren't known overall. And I think the conglomerate of those features plus men tend to, they're not as good patients as women overall. They tend to minimize their symptoms until it's too late. And then they present at a more severe state, uh, stat, uh, stage of their disease. And you mentioned, too, that you have ongoing Zoom meetings with your international colleagues around the world, especially Wuhan and Ganzhou and, and Singapore. Jerry, when you see patients now, and it's early, it's early in this uh, evolution, 
Are you concerned about permanent lung damage when the people are fortunate enough to um, recover, um, even if it's a long stretch? Are you concerned about permanent lung damage? And uh, the other question, if we can add it in the next two minutes, how about pulmonary rehab? They're going to, the rehab docs are going to be so busy um, helping these people recover. Yeah, two good questions, Marianne. So the first, permanent lung damage, it's really too, too brief a period of time to look at that because even in cases from Wuhan where the people recovered, we're talking about February. If we look at prior epidemics like this with COVID-1, the SARS ser- uh, serious uh, acute respiratory illness that happened 17 years ago, mm-hmm. there's about 13 to 15% of the population did end up having longer-term lung problems, such as uh, chronic lung problems where the lung was too small because it was scarred, or airway problems that cause more wheezing or infection. So time will tell. In terms of rehab, our most seriously ill patients who are placed on ventilators and are treated with medications that need to mobilize them, they will be weak and have disuse atrophy of their limbs and other skeletal muscle. They will need rehab. And it's going to mandate the creation of an infrastructure where COVID recent patients can be congregated together to have their own dedicated rehab program. And that's what we're doing at Temple. Fantastic. And I think the other question would be, um, with pulmonary rehab itself, you already have such a beautiful system for your COPD patients and, and the other patients that you take care of. It's probably already there. Yeah, we just have to really separate the patients, screen them to make sure they're still not infectious, which we have an organized approach to do that, and then be able to like give them the rehab that they need. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the ongoing trials for COVID therapies. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And back here on Your Radio Doctor, here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Don't forget, if you miss any of today's one-hour show, just go to Radio.com, search Your Radio Doctor, or you can go to YourRadioDoctor.com. And welcome back. We're here with Dr. Jerry Kreiner from the Temple Lung Center. Jerry, you mentioned that clinical research is so helpful, and it can only be done if patients agree to participate. Let's hear about some of the many trials that are ongoing at Temple that are addressing the need for therapy for COVID-19. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Well, we have a number of studies that are being done, but I'd like to break them down to like the overall two major categories. The first is trying to prevent the virus from continuing to replicate or grow in the body. And the second is to decrease the amount of inflammation that the virus causes, primarily for the lung but other organs. Um, If you look at the therapies that we have to decrease the virus from replicating, the studies that we have done the most is with remdesivir. These are in patients that are hospitalized. It's given intravenously for five or 10 days in people with severe COVID involvement of the lung with severe pneumonia that causes them to need high levels of oxygen or be placed on the ventilator. And other patients that are less severe, that they don't need Uh, oxygen at this time, but still have pneumonia. 
and use it for courses of either five or 10 days. And these studies were the nidus of, of really um, the drug being approved and getting emergency approval from the FDA to be able to be used to treat patients now. The other way to decrease the antibody from replicating may be by using convalescent plasma. What that is is taking the blood from patients who have already recovered from COVID. The blood is prepared and matched to the recipient by the blood type, and then the protein is administered to patients in about two to 400 mLs of one, um, one, one uh, in, uh, infusion over a period of two to three hours. And what that does is bring antibodies in that helps to decrease the virus from replicating and giving the recipient passive immunity. We don't know how effective the latter is because that's just been used in a few number of patients. And we're part of a, um, a trial that's being uh, the National Convalescent Program that's part of the FDA as well as Mayo Clinic serves as the uh, coordinating center uh, joint project It's a national program overall. So those are two major programs that we use for viral replication. And there's a couple others that are in, in process of being released. Some are oral uh, and, and some are intravenous. The other major category that we have trials are is to decrease the inflammation, the side effect that occurs with the intense inflammation that occurs with the virus infection. Prime interest is the lung because the lung is impaired the most. It fills with fluid from the inflammation. It can cause serious danger and harm to the patient if it's not treated. So these are all different types of antibodies that block cells from being activated to release chemokines and cytokines. These are substances that cause inflammation and weepage of fluid into the lung. So there's a variety of different target molecules that we're working for the latter group. Right. So if I may revisit the convalescent plasma, Jari, you're the first person that has reinstated that when um, we're taking this plasma from somebody who already had COVID, that it has to be typed and matched according to the blood type, uh, blood type of the recipient, well, both parties. And um, are there any other risks that we have to think about that uh, giving plasma infusions could cause for the patient? Yeah, there's, there's always concerns with infusing blood products. There's always the concern, even though it's very, very, very remote now um, with modern blood banking, that there could be a, a transmission of an infectious agent. However, that's extremely mm-hmm. uncommon now. There's also that, you know, it's matched, but it's not a perfect match for all the cells that might be in the plasma or the proteins. So people still can get a transfusion reaction, which we have to monitor and watch carefully for. And the third thing, it's volume. So plasma has more proteins in it. So when you infuse that into a patient, those people that may have problems with their kidneys or their heart, they can't handle fluid volume load with rich oncotic protein like that. So it might make them uh, more congested into their lungs overall. So we have to look for that too. So there's nothing without risk and you have to balance each patient. What's the benefit versus the risk for an individual patient? Sure. And uh, is there not a question of um, clotting factors as well, that it might bump the risk for increased clotting? Yeah, and some patients giving them proteins too, and patients have a significant problem already with clotting abnormalities because their blood is thicker. This could increase the aggregation of proteins and increase the risk for um, thrombo, uh, thrombus formation. Yes. And then we talked a little bit about hydroxychloroquine trials. That 
blocks the virus from attaching. Some, you know, remdesivir keeps the virus from replicating, but hydroxychloroquine gets in the way of the virus attaching to cells. That might be something that healthcare workers will see if that helps uh, protect healthcare workers. Yes, um, hydroxychloroquine, there's been a lot of press about that, and actually chloroquine in some countries and how that might de- decrease viral replication. Um, the studies to date that have been published are pretty small in the COVID population, um, and uh, they basically are in some part contradictory. Some show benefit in decreasing viral replication, others showing no benefit at all, and then there is a retrospective analysis of veteran uh, hospital patients that showed that those who uh, were treated with hydroxychloroquine had an increased risk of mortality. Um, Mm -hmm. That was a retrospective, not prospective study, but highlights that every drug can have risk. In the the aspect of hydroxychloroquine, it can do things that would prolong the time for the heart uh, electrical impulse to recover. And if patients are on other drugs that can make the QT uh, um, segment, which it's called the polarization of the heart longer, could increase the risk for sudden cardiac death. So, oh, sure. And, oh, sorry. Yeah, so those, those studies, prospective studies well done need to be conducted to show its benefit and risk. Yes, and I think when somebody takes a medicine like this as anti-malarial before they go on a trip, it's a healthy person. We're talking about this super inflammatory reaction that the immune system provides and it not only inflames the lungs, the lining of the lungs and the GI tract and the nose, so you lose a sense of smell, but it's also causing inflammation in the linings of arteries and veins, leading to increased clotting. So you're giving a, a, a medication that might have uh, an effect on the heart in a healthy person, added to a person who's really sick with inflammation in their vessels and their heart. And the other thing, I noticed that... Um, uh, Sarilumab. Oh my gosh, I've said it a thousand times. Sarilumab. Yes, Sarilumab. I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> there, there were good results with that uh, with a study in China. It, it, as you say, it helps to um, decrease the inflammatory cascade of cytokines and all the proteins that make this super inflammation happen. Do you have any uh, good faith in that? Yeah, I think that there's. Drugs in that class, uh, cerulimab, tuzolizumab, uh, that have shown benefit in decreasing um, important endpoints, such as not only mortality, which is the most important endpoint, but the need for patients to go on a ventilator. There was a, a recent uh, just top-line sort of report from the French ministry that sponsored a study that showed that patients, it was about 250 patients study, who received tuzolizumab, which is an interleukin-6 antagonist, had a, a decreased uh, rate of either needing ventilation and mortality compared to those who didn't receive that drug. Mm-hmm. So I think these interleukin antagonists that work on the inflammatory cascade have high promise to be successful in a disease like COVID-19 in the acute right. phases. And cerilumab sure. is something that I haven't really heard studied a lot elsewhere. And finally, in our last minute here, Jerry, tell us about inhaled nitric oxide. Yeah, inhaled nitric oxide has been uh, available for two and a half decades for a variety of different pulmonary conditions like acute respiratory distress syndrome and in some uh, uh, niche populations for pulmonary hypertension. So there are some studies that we and others are doing looking at the use of this gas and see if it can dilate 
lung blood vessels and increase the oxygen in the body and do it in a strategic way that it would dilate only the blood vessel areas where the gas is able being to get into the alveolus. So it doesn't worsen the oxygen in the body. It actually increases it and might lower the lung blood pressure. Um, it also might have some slight anti-inflammatory effects locally, but you know the studies are underway and hopefully they'll show benefits. Beautiful. And, and just to go back to what we were talking about earlier about patients being enrolled, to go back to your COB, COPD trials, in the past five years, you've drawn in over 27,000 new patients? Well, I don't know if it's that many, but <laughs> there's been a lot. Um, yeah, we see about uh, 85,000 patients a year, both inpatients and outpatients, or patient visits. They might not be unique patients uh, through the programs. Most of our programs are geared towards patients with advanced lung diseases, so patients with obstructive diseases, which are a variety of COPD, emphysema, asthma, bronchiectasis, chronic bronchitis, and people with other types of lung diseases, such as scarring of the lung with interstitial fibrosis or sarcoid, or people with pulmonary vascular problems from chronic clot, or people with pulmonary hypertension, sleep disturbances. So unfortunately, there's a lot of lung disease. Um, that That's not good, but uh, we're fortunate to have a group of uh, physicians and nurses and therapists that have dedicated their life to try to understand and treat better patients that have those problems. Wonderful. When we come back, more from Dr. Jerry Kreiner from the Temple Lung Center. Thank you, Jerry. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're in our final segment of this week's show with Dr. Jerry Kreiner from the Temple Lung Center. Jerry, to wrap up, how important is it now more than ever to stop smoking with COVID in our atmosphere? Well, COVID makes it more important, but stopping smoking, no matter how long you've smoked, is always important. Uh, stopping smoking is the one of the few ways with people with COPD or emphysema that you can improve survival. Um, it also is a way to decrease flare-ups called exacerbations. That's the most sentinel thing in a patient with COPD's uh, life. And it's the major way to decrease your lung cancer risk. So stopping smoking has always been important. But in people with COVID-19, uh, one of the major factors that can increase their chance of mortality, especially shown in the Italian population, was people that were current or former smokers, mainly current smokers. So decreasing smoking is pivotal to maintain good health at all times, but especially in this time when COVID-19 is an important infection. True. Now, we have a, uh, a listener who wrote in a question that uh, it's a woman who said that her father-in-law, who's elderly, lives with them at home, and he has COPD. Should everybody else in the family, should the other family members be wearing masks to protect their granddad? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I don't think they need to wear a mask uh, all the time that they're around somebody if they know that they've had no exposure and have done social distancing and they don't have a um, kind of exposure to other people that they may not know if they're asymptomatic carriers or not. But I think if people do have occupations or jobs where they go out and meet the public and don't know what kind of contact that they've had or have any respiratory symptoms themselves, 
that they should take special care to avoid being in the physical presence of people who are more vulnerable, those mm-hmm. who are older, those who are older in age, younger in age, or those who are immune suppressed. And always exhibit good hand washing and all around when you're people. And do COPD patients need special masks? I would think the same as everyone else, just be mindful to wear a mask. And, and yeah. someone else asked, are there special air filters for your homes that are really effective? I think this virus is so small that I don't know that that would make a difference. Yeah, it shouldn't make a difference. I think the general kind of beliefs of like just cleaning the surfaces, clean, washing your hands frequently, don't touch your face. Wear a mask when you're exposed to other people in public and social distancing, at least six feet away from people if you can can do that. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for being with us today. If a patient wanted to come to Temple for treatment or participate in the study, I guess the best way to contact and make an appointment would be to call 1-800-TEMPLE-MED. That's correct. That's the easiest way to do it. And I want to say happy Mother's Day to all our listeners. And I have I have a Mother's Day question for you, Dr. Kreiner, that will either get you a gold star or you'll be put in the naughty corner when you go home. I understand that your lovely wife is your favorite and best clinical nurse coordinator for research. Am I right? You are right. She's the best. <laughs> She's the boss at home and at work. So it makes oh, it easy. Yeah. There you go. Okay. No naughty corner for you. You got two gold stars. Jerry Kreiner, thank you so much. God bless. Stay well. You too, Marianne. Thanks very much. Thank you. All righty. That was absolutely stellar. Thank you so much to Dr. Jerry Kreiner. And now for this week's Your Real Champions. Siobhan Knox is a leader. She graduated from LaSalle University with a business degree. And inside of 10 short years at Vanguard, she quickly rose to the level of project manager, employee manager, and director of the leadership development program. But one day she heard a call from a different direction. Then, a mother of two toddlers, she returned to LaSalle on nights and weekends to become a nurse at Temple University Hospital, just like her mother. The love in her voice came through the phone as she continued her story. Shimon's father died when she was in fourth grade leaving her own mother, Pat Gannon, to raise three children alone while working full-time. Pat has devoted her over 30 years of service to Temple, where she's a nurse in the interventional radiology department. But when COVID came to town, Pat was deployed to the war zone, a COVID unit, and she went willingly. As a union representative, Pat said her heart bled. It bothered her that her fellow nurses were struggling, So she started volunteering even on her days off. Pat said, I was going in to help. I wasn't going to run away. Plus, I've been a nurse for so long, I figure my immune system's good. One day, Pat was caring for a man who had just come off a ventilator. He was weak, had difficulty speaking, but kept repeating numbers in Spanish. Pat finally realized he was reciting his phone number. The man wept as he spoke to his family for the first time in weeks. And Pat said, This was 100% why I became a nurse. It's what I love. A few days later, a fellow nurse told Siobhan that her mother happened to be working on the same floor at the opposite end. You see, Siobhan was also pulled from her usual station in the cardiology unit. She found her mother, Pat. They shared a high five, and then they took a selfie to remember the moment. Pat, the mom, said she is so proud of her family, which includes her children and her fellow nurses. It also includes her daughter-in-law, 
who shared the stage with Pat at graduation from Holy Family University one year ago when they both earned a bachelor's degree in nursing. My friends, these are women who find meaning in suffering. They're devoted to bringing physical and emotional comfort to the sick, like mother, like daughter. In separate conversations, both women shared the same inspirational message. I'm doing what I was born to do. Happy Mother's Day to your real champions, Siobhan Knox and her mother, Pat Gannon. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. And we always end the show with reminding you, if you want to hear any of our podcasts again, you can listen to yourradiodoctor.com. And send us a photo of the American flag in front of your home or your business. Send it to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Or send us a story about your real champions to the same info at yourradiodoctor.com. And if you can, please think about donating blood to the Red Cross. And when we talk about washing your hands, wearing a mask in public, staying six feet away, please try to do it. Many people are trying, but sometimes I look out my window and I see people walking in groups of three or four, shoulder to shoulder with no masks, or maybe runners in a small pack, huffing and puffing, no masks. Just because Philly didn't have the big surge and may have reached a plateau, it doesn't mean we can become casual in our outlook. Please, this virus can have deadly consequences depending where you help to spread it. And the other thought is, last week, Detective John Mick, our champion from the Laura Marion Police and Norbeth Ambulance, said their calls are down by 40%. Please, if you have symptoms of stroke or heart attack, don't sit home thinking it will go away. Call the ambulance. And tune in next week to hear from Dr. Christopher Zahn from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology to talk about COVID and pregnancy. And remember, your health is your wealth. Happy Mother's Day to all. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.